Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. This is your host for this episode, Bruce Kelly. My partner, Jeff Benjamin, uh, couldn't make it today, so I'm flying solo, uh, which is always a bit dangerous, I guess. But we do have a terrific, terrific industry guest for everybody's listening pleasure and delight. Please say hello to Jim Gold. CEO, founding partner, Steward Partners Global Advisory, a mega RIA that's very mega and growing every day. So one of the most interesting firms of the past 10 years, really, I think, to come on to the scene and spin off of, of Wall Street. Jim Gold, how are you today, sir? Doing well, Bruce. Happy to be here. Thank you for the time. Great. Jim, what did you make of my opening comments there before we get into detail about the history of the firm a little bit. It's just kind of interesting what has been happening, I think, on Wall Street the past 10 years and big firms like yours kind of springing off uh, springing off of Wall Street, I think, right? Yeah. And I think, you know, if you look at the Cerulli data, you know, it supports what we've all seen, which is if you go back to 10 years ago, the, the four sort of wirehouse firms, as they continue to be called, you know, they were basically responsible for over 50% of all wealth management revenue. Uh, that has steadily declined over the last decade in spite of a bull market and, and obviously assets and revenue going up. So it just shows you, you know, the market share is clearly on the independent side. And obviously, there's a lot of competition in our space. And we have to make sure that we uh, continue to be on the cutting edge to make sure we're a place that will attract uh, top advisors. Yeah, and I think uh, Wall Street, too, the big firms, Merrill Lynch, uh, Morgan Stanley and now UBS, they're trying to mechanize operations as well in a way that independent firms are not. The independent RIA or broker-dealer really places the emphasis on the financial advisor where, you know, take a look at Merrill Edge, right? I mean, they're more and more of their clients uh, with less than a million dollars to invest are being placed in these kind of mechanized systems or mechanized advisory uh, websites. Right. Yes, I think it's it's one of these things that, you know, a firm can tell you anything they want to tell you, but are they willing to put it in writing? Right. So we're one of the only firms I know on Wall Street and Raymond James is one of the others where we not only put in writing that our advisors own their business, we also put in writing with them a non-solicitation clause. So if Steward Partners eventually is not the right home for you, you're free to go. We're sorry it didn't work out. And your clients were yours coming in and your, your clients leaving. I think most of the wirehouse firms are, they all watch the Shawshank Redemption and they're worried about building a better prison and not making it a better place to stay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love, my kid, I love watching that movie with my kids. My, kid, my, my, my kids really love Shawshank. Yeah. Just tell us a little bit about yourself and Steward its roots and its origins. You come from Morgan Stanley or Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. Yeah. So I started uh, 27 years ago at Smith Barney on Long Island as a trainee, um, went into branch management in 1999. So I would say they tricked me into branch management. They said I was going to make a lot of money and have a lot of fun, um, but I did it anyway. So I, I held a number of roles there. Uh, first role was a national training officer, which I really enjoyed that uh, to be a coach and a trainer for the new hires. And then went on to become a complex director, uh, was at Morgan Stanley for a period of time as well. So, Well, Morgan Stanley bought Smith Barney. 
Correct. Right in 2010, I believe. That sounds about right. Yeah. Right. They're right around. So the credit crisis happens. The huge fish acquires the other huge fish, Morgan right. Stanley. It's one of James Gorman's really things that he points to as one of his crowning achievements, I think, in his time at Morgan Stanley. So the credit crisis is ongoing. What are you thinking right then in 2010 as you're shifting over to, to Morgan Stanley? Um, I mean, listen, at that time, if you remember, we were first supposed to be acquired by Wachovia, right? And then that, That's de- right. And that deal fell through. So there was clearly a lot of mayhem and uncertainty. And I remember my wife talking about one night waking up and I'm watching CNBC at three o'clock in the morning. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm seeing if I'm going to work tomorrow. You know, cause you're seeing you know, what firm goes bankrupt overnight and what have you. So that would have been September 2008, most likely when Lehman Brothers was. Right. Because the Morgan Smith Barney deal, I think, was announced but not closed for about a year uh, from, right. from, from my memory. But right. That was January 2009. And then it closed about 12 months later. Right. Yeah. I mean, listen, it's what has happened, I think, is the classic of Wall Street. Right. You have two firms acquired. You know, there's an acquiring firm and, and you know, the. the other firm tends to be you know, pulled apart and, and people tend to be moved out, moved along and moved out. So, um, but look, I think that the trend at Smith, at Smith Barney was... But did you have the impetus to start Stewart Partners or go independent at that time? You, you must have because you started Stewart Partners of two or three years after that, I believe, right? I mean, I think what we saw, Bruce, from the inside of the wirehouses is we saw the flight to independence. You know, our advisors would come in to us and say... Hey, what's going on in Independence? I heard this big team left and started an RIA. And you know, at that time, you heard about firms like Hightower and Dynasty. It was really picking up then. Correct. So I think that there was a trend that started. We heard a lot about it. We saw it from the inside of the wirehouses. You saw that there was a, a real interest in learning about Independence. I think confusion about what it really was. And I think the biggest thing we also saw was that many advisors would say, Gee, you know, independence sounds great, but I don't want to set up an office and have to order coffee and fix the printer. And um, so that was sort of helpful for us as a roadmap of what to build the steward. Right. So um, I think that the gene of steward uh, management is probably predominantly Smith Barney. So a number of us spent you know, almost our entire careers at Smith Barney. Right. Prior to the merger. And listen, it was a fine, fine firm and no firm's perfect. And Smith Barney made mistakes. But what we always felt at Smith Barney was if a mistake was made, it was recognized and remedied. Right. And that's that's the key. You talk about culture. That That's the key to a culture. Right. Do you recognize a mistake was made? Do you own up to it? And do you fix it? Uh, Charlie Johnson was the leader of Smith Barney for all my management career and thrilled and honored that Charlie became a board member of Steward. Uh, about five years ago now. So Charlie's been a great resource. Also have Bob Mulholland, who ran UBS and Wells, uh, Merrill Lynch. So we have two very significant industry titans and I think super high quality people. And, and they've been very additive to the board and, and to helping build the right culture. Right. So when when did you literally walk out the door of Morgan Stanley Smith Barney and, and turn the lights on at Stewart Partners? Um, so I left in the spring of 13 and got together with some of the other founders we built a hundred page business plan. We probably spoke to 30 potential firms to, you know, sort of join us in this, in this journey. And, you know, from the very first meeting, we're very intrigued and impressed by Raymond James. As you know, we, we chose Raymond James to be our, our, you know, wasn't a partnership legally, but we looked at them as our partners um, in this journey. So we launched in 
That was actually September 20th of 2013 was our, our first day on the Raymond James platform, if you will. Right. So the lights go on and the back office really is Raymond James at that point. Correct. Yeah, we were in their independent right. channel, which is referred to as RJFS. Right. Raymond James Financial Services. Right. So, but you're an advisor-owned firm, right? We are. So none of the you know none of the leadership team are in production. So I always tell people we're not your competitor, right? We're we're your colleague. We're here to help you. Um, so the firm is seventy-five percent owned by advisors and people who work at the firm. The other twenty-five percent, roughly, is held by our two outside investors in uh, the Sinusure organization, as well as the Pritzker organization who invested uh, just about a little over a year ago now as the Pritzker organization. Right. Okay. So, uh, and that's a natural, right progression, I would think, with a firm growing like you guys did, that you had to go out and get some more capital. You know, it is, Bruce. I think what's not normal is there's no other firm ever built to our size that didn't take in capital to start. Right. And, and that's really critical because when you do that to start, you don't really have much to sell except a business plan. So what ends up happening is the investor at that time owns 50, 60, 70 percent of the firm. So today there is not another firm that offers a 1099 affiliation option that also grants equity in the parent company. We are the only one, period, end of story. I don't know of another W-2 firm that does it anymore. A few of our competitors used to or did it as sort of an initial phase. So I'm pretty sure we may be the only independent firm that makes every new partner also a shareholder when they come in the firm. And I guess that, that's like a whole other layer of diligence, I guess, on your part. Right? Because sure. you must be, you want to be extremely careful with who you bring, a, bring aboard and who you're giving stock to. Right, right. Yeah, listen, we've been fortunate. I think there's a there's somewhat of a self-selection process that I think occurs. You know, if, if you're a breakaway advisor and you're looking for the biggest deal, you're not talking really to any independent firm, right? Because you're going to go to another wirehouse. Um, right. What we tend to attract, and I think it's very consistent across the firm, uh, we are, if I use year-end numbers last year, 82% of our revenue was done in our corporate RIA which is, according to our friends at Barron's, the 20th largest RIA in the world as of last year. And the RIA today is about 50% larger than it was last year, so we're looking forward to the new rankings coming out. Um, mo the, the majority of our advisors have a CFP designation or higher, so highly accredited, um, very much a planning-based process. And then about 10% more of our revenue is some type of trail, whether that's insurance, annuities, mutual funds, what have you. So you know, 92% recurring, so very much like an RIA, although we have a broker dealer, so we're not technically only RIA. And the other 8% or so is really, um, you know, fixed income ladders without a commission or maybe new issue insurance. So it's been amazing how consistent the folks we attract that are to those numbers. Last year, the average producer we hired, if you take all the recruits we brought in last year, which was a record for the firm, and divided by the, the revenue, the average producer hired last year was about a million four. Uh, a million four in annual revenue. That's that's very much on the high end for the advisory wealth management brokerage industry, yep. I would say. Yeah. So you're definitely in the top 10 percentile there, I would imagine. Just to get to just a couple of numbers. Uh, so how many, what's the headcount of the firm right now? And then the total assets. And then if you... If you share it, the gross revenue, I guess, or the gross GDC that you all do. Um, so again, last year we we finished the year about twenty seven, a little over twenty seven billion in total assets. 
a little over 17 billion of that was RIA assets. So those are long assets. Where do we don't talk about the assets under advisement? These are actual long assets. So 27 billion right. was the top number, 17 billion RIA, about 180 advisors or so at the end of last year. And total revenue forecasted this year is a little over 200 million. 200 million, okay. So what? So last year you made a couple of announcements. You were gonna, you were gonna stay. You were gonna use Raymond James as your custodian for your R for the RIA was one announcement, I believe. Yeah. But then you also said you were gonna use Goldman Sachs as a custodian for the RIA too. It's very common to have multiple custodians, of course. Sure. You know, but I couldn't find any mention in your latest ADV of Goldman Sachs as your as this as the RIA's custodian. So I was wondering what was what was going on there. Yeah. So just to go back a step, so the genesis of all this was when we acquired the uh, wealth management division of Umpqua Wealth Management. As part of that transaction, we also acquired their broker dealer, right? Which is something we and they're a bank, right? Out in West, yeah, West Coast Space Bank. In, in the Pacific Northwest, I believe, right? Correct. So, I mean, the acquisition allowed us to pick up their broker-dealer, which was always something in the back of our mind, aspirationally, we wanted to do. So that goes back, you know, probably 18 months ago. Um, so at that time, when we knew we were acquiring the broker-dealer, we went to talk to, you know, the folks at Raymond James and said, hey, we're getting a broker-dealer. How do we best utilize a broker-dealer and obviously still maintain our really important relationship with Raymond James? And the answer was you would have to move over to what they refer to as RCS, which is really the combination of their custody clearing division and their RIA division, which emerged about a year or so ago, maybe a right. longer. Um, so they were great. I mean, we worked closely with them. We literally took 18 months to, to make that move. Uh, we moved the entire Raymond James franchise from one side of the firm to the other over Memorial Day weekend, so about two months ago now. Um, and in that time, we also went out and said to them, hey, we're going to talk to other custodians. We, we'd like to see if there's other options we could have. Um, so Goldman Sachs at that time had just announced that they were going to start building this custody clearing division. Right. And you know, they chose Steward to be their first institutional client. So there's been a fair amount of media coverage. There's been uh, David Solomon, who I don't know, I've never spoken to, um, was referenced, obviously, at their earnings report recently. And what I'd say is, you know, Goldman is continuing to build something. Uh, I think the misnomer of the earnings report, people are seeing this three to five years. Again, I don't know David Solomon. This is my own personal opinion. I, I think what was being said was that in three to five years, this custody clearing division will be a meaningful part of Goldman Sachs. Uh, it, I didn't take it as saying it's going to take three years until they turn the lights on. Right. So. They're not ready today. They're building furiously. We literally speak to our team at Goldman Sachs, if not daily, sometimes five times a day and sometimes not for two or three days. But we're kept being kept you know, apprised of what's going on there. Uh, there's a lot that has been done. There's a lot to do. Right. And what I think really could happen, but there's a lot of execution risk. Right. There's a commitment that has to be maintained. And Goldman has made a big commitment to this is I think Goldman has to get to a platform that is viable, right? Where you can start bringing assets onto it and recruiting onto it. Although to be fair, again, there's 200 clients that still are on the Folio platform that were on it before, you know, they launched this other channel. Right. Um, so well, Goldman I, bought Folio, right? Correct. 
And they, my understanding is they wanted to build out that right. to use as their RIA custodian, basically. Correct. Right? Yep. So I think, listen, I think Goldman goes, it, the evolution will go from a viable platform to a good platform, to a great platform, to hopefully the envy of Wall Street platform. And I would, again, my speculation is I think that's what David Solomon was referring to, that that's that three to five right. year time frame to get to something that's really spectacular. It reminds me, Bruce, it's like you think back in the day when Microsoft said, hey, we're going to get into gaming. And everyone kind of said, what? Microsoft's going to be getting into gaming? Yeah, yeah. And now it's a meaningful part of their business, right? Goldman Sachs made some, you know tens of billions of dollars last quarter. Clearly, this new channel is not represented in, in that quarter number at, at all. Right. Yeah, I just think it's it's uh, it also just demonstrates how tough it is to execute on something. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot right? to build, right? It, so you, you really, if you're going to compete with Fidelity, Schwab, and Raymond, you know, to a lesser extent, Raymond James, which isn't of that size, or LPL, or the old TD Ameritrade. I mean, it's tough to do. So when you do, that's why, and I've said this on the on the podcast before, when people actually have a plan and execute it, you got to give yourself a little bit of time just a moment or two to, you know, give yourself a pat on the back there or something, because it is hard to do if you're, if you're Stewart partners, if you're Raymond James, or if you're the New York Mets, you know, <laughs> to right. have a plan, execute it and, and, you know, see something come to fruition. Absolutely. But listen, I think at the end of the day, I do believe Goldman's going to get it right. I do believe it's going to be, you know, amazing when it's ready. Either way, it's still an enormous validation of the independent model, right? For a firm like Goldman right. Sachs, who's never been known for really an interest in that, to say, hey, we want to build out an independent you know, custody clearing division. Clearly, we feel like we're on the right side of the, of the industry. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, you know, I mean, back going, you know, I've been doing this for, uh, for a while. And going back in my 22 years at Investment News, if you had told me, and if I had mentioned an independent RIA to people at Goldman Sachs in the year 2000, they would have laughed me out of the room. Right. <laughs> you know, they didn't want anything to do with this business, you know, or, 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 or breakaway brokers or independent RIA custodians or anything like that. They, that, that was, you know, investment banking, transactions, <laughs> trading, <laughs> products. That was it. A lot has changed. Sure. In two decades. Anything else about your arrangement with Raymond James right now? So the brokerage is, you, you do a small percent of brokerage Correct. of your revenue comes from brokerage. 80% plus comes from advisory. You know, less than that, the, the rest goes through brokerage or, or fixed income trading or, as you say, or variable annuities and the like. Um, all very standard stuff. The brokerage is with Umqua. No, so you, what you have is, so we have sort of two sets of advisors, if you will. If you're right. a, if you were a legacy advisor who joined us at Raymond James, a hundred percent of what you're doing is at Raymond James. So the RCS channel is both brokerage and RIA. Okay. Right. So that was they they converged those channels. I said about. Uh, maybe 15 months ago, I don't know the exact date. So 100% of what we did with Raymond James, we continue to do with Raymond James. Uh, we right. continue to recruit for Raymond James. We're excited about it. We have a bunch of recruits coming in. We have someone starting in a week or two um, and more, you know, a lot more behind that. So you're getting through this conversion. And I use the corny analogy of, you know, if you're building a house, you're not worried about planning the housewarming party, right? So we got through Memorial Day, we got through the conversion, and now it's back to growing and building and doing all the things we right. do. 
we built a tech stack last year, which is terrific. And some of the top industry tools like Black Diamond uh, are now embedded in our platform. The legacy Umqua, which is our Western division, they still sit with First Clearing, right? Which is where they were okay. before the transaction. And that's the Wells Fargo uh, clearing brand. Correct. Obviously. Yep. And a great team, a great team over there at First Clearing as well. That's what people have always said about First Clearing. So I'm just kind of interested, you know, the end game for Steward Partners, you are 75% rep privately held, which makes you very different, um, as you noted. You know, you have a Tiedemann Partners, right? Is going merged, is going public via a SPAC, right? You have some of these other private equity reverence capital created a SPAC. They own Advisor Group, which is a different type of brokerage from you guys, different type of RIA advisory brokerage from you guys. Is Are there too many of these? Dynasty, for example, it's not an RIA, but it's a service firm. They file for an IPO. Is what's uh, would you guys consider having an IPO, or what's the what's the evolution for you guys? Or are there too many of these wealth management firms considering IPOs? Uh, I would say a couple of things. I think what's interesting, you know, as we we talked in the earlier, is highlighting that all the partners here are equity owners and, and the seventy five percent. You know, if I'm at another one of these wealth management firms and I'm an advisor, what do I care if they're going public? What do I care if they're selling the firm? I don't have any equity. Right. All that, all that does for me as an advisor is give me uncertainty. Well, if you're senior management, you do. Well, I get it. That's great for them. But that's that's always If you're my, the CEO, you, should, you bet your life you got you got equity. Of course. Right? But I'm saying but that's where it's different is that that is, is replicating the problem of a wirehouse, right? So if you're at a, another wealth independent firm and they sell or do a SPAC and you don't have any equity, you get no upside. And now you get uncertainty and hopefully you like the new owner and hopefully you don't have to move your business, right? So I think very, very different than how we look at it. What I'd say, Bruce, is we have not excluded anything except we're never going to sell this company to a wirehouse firm, right? So we, you could ask any of our board members and happen to have you chat with them anytime. Charlie and Bob might be good guys to start with. We don't talk about this in board meetings. We talk about the firm, how's the culture, how's morale, how's the growth projections going. Uh, it's not, oh, hey, we're on the clock. We got two years to the IPO. It is the furthest thing from our mind. We're truly trying to build... I think a billion dollar revenue firm, uh, which we think we can do in the next six or seven years. And I use the analogy of, you know, a rocket uses 90% of the fuel to get out of the atmosphere. We're out of the atmosphere now. Um, so the growth is gonna accelerate. The percentages may go down. Last year we grew by 56%. We might not grow up by 56% this year, but it'll be more dollars in revenue than we grew by last year. Um, so if we keep doing that, we keep running a really clean firm, we keep having very high average production and very you know high uh, ROA percentage, I'm sorry, RIA percentage, excuse me, um, all the options in the world will be on the table, but it is truly not a focus of the board or the senior leadership team. Uh, no, you're, you're obviously worried about other things. You're not owned by private equity too, which would have a path towards an IPO. Right. And that's where with the family office, the family office capital was so critical to us because in both cases, the money didn't come out of a fund. So there is no shelf life. And it was one, right. one of our investors likes to say, I'm happy to have an illiquid rate of return as long as I'm getting, you know, I'm happy to keep my capital as long as I'm getting an illiquid rate of return. So right. for us, we're fortunate that, you know, when you have a private equity firm and there's nothing wrong with private equity capital, it's great capital and they're super knowledgeable people. 
The challenge is they have a clock and that might be the worst time for you to think about selling or to have to be forced into a liquidity situation. But if their clock's up and they got to raise fund four, you know, sorry, it's our agreement and it's time to sell. And you said you were at 200 million in revenue projected this year. Correct. Right. So that means to get to a billion, that's five times. I was an English major, but that sounds right. <laughs> I was an English major too. Um, that's why I write for Investment News. I, I like to... I like to uh, Say I can do baseball card math. There you go. We think. Listen, to, to get to that number, Bruce, I think we need we need to raise about another. But you did an acquisition last year. That's why. That's right. That's how you did Umqua. Correct. That was one reason how you grew so so much last year, right? Correct. But I think we should do an Umqua every year, and I think over time, you know, if you really take our the way that the complexion of the business, I think we need to be about one hundred and twenty-five billion. At one hundred and twenty-five billion, you're a billion-dollar revenue firm. So if we're bringing in eight to 10 billion a year, you know, you get a little help from the market. We have very good organic growth at the firm. I think you look out five, six, seven, eight years and you're right there. And you're at, you said 30 billion in assets right now or? Uh, last year was 27 and change, like 27, four. 27, okay. Yeah. And last year was a terrific year for the markets, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of wind at everybody's back. Yeah, we're, we're down single digits this year. And part of that is we have great advisors who know how to run money. And part of that is we continue to recruit, right? So if the market takes away right. two, two billion and I bring, we bring in four, we're going to be net up for the year. And that's, you know, we're tracking better than that. But yes, we're fortunate with the re- continued inorganic growth. It's a nice offset to the, the headwinds of the market. And just, well, I guess one more question before you, you, if you want to add anything, just who are you talking to right now to bring into the firm as recruits or new advisors? Are there any specific kinds of advisors you're looking for? Or if someone's listening to this, how should they know if they should give you a call? I'll let you were asking for like specific names and stuff. <laughs> well, if, if, you know, obviously you guys recruit no, a I lot know. out from the big firms, right. obviously. That's where yeah. the Merrill Lynch's and the Morgan Stanley's, et cetera. Right. You know, that's a, lo- a lot of your people come from that world, right. obviously. Listen, we're talking to a ton of people. As I said, we have a very strong second half plan with onboarding. Um, what we again, we tend to attract the heavily advisory advisor. We tend to attract the RA. They like the RAA. They like the planning. They have an accreditation. It's also the culture of the firm, right? The culture is very, very different. We have won best places to work six years in a row. We were the only firm to win it in small category, medium category, large category. No firm has ever won it in two categories. We won it in three. Um, and that's not, by the way, I'm embarrassed on one hand to say this, and I'm honored on the other hand, the advisors nominated the company. We didn't even know they put the company up to win the award. Um, so right. so the culture is really, really different, Bruce. And I'll give you a little secret that we have that other firms don't. Our best recruiters are the people that work here. And every single year, more than half of our new partners come as a referral from an existing partner. I could tell you for sure, because I worked at one for a long time, no advisor at a wirehouse is referring their manager or their friends. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a great way to end the uh, podcast there, Jim. All right. <laughs> Do you have anything else to add on top of that? No, listen, we're excited for the future. You know, I'd say I told our firm a a couple months ago, we had our quarterly update with our chairman of our board. We do that every quarter, you know, for uh, disclosure to the partners. You know, in the history of the firm, I've never been more optimistic, right? I feel like we built an amazing foundation. We're hitting our stride. We're sort of firing on all cylinders. So I think, 
the future for independence is super bright and Stewart's going to be continuing to be up there and, you know, in the top of the pack with the group of uh, other great firms we compete with. But listen, we always say there's $30 trillion out there in play. All the great independent firms could get their 100, 200 billion, and there's still plenty left for others to come into the game as well. Jim Gold of Stewart Partners, thanks so much. My pleasure, Bruce. All right, thanks again. Hey, if it's Monday, uh, it's time for another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank once more our special guest, Jim Gold, CEO of Steward Partners Global Advisory. Uh, we also want to thank uh, our producer, Angelica Hester. Of course, you can find the podcast at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. You can reach out uh, to my colleague, Jeff Benjamin, on Twitter. His handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned. We'll be talking to you next week.